two-week notice podcast. Yo, yo, what up, everyone? You are listening to the Two Week Notice Podcast. My name is Dana Bree. I'm your host. Thank you so much for listening. Come on! Today, we have an awesome episode. The guest is Simon O'Connor. Simon is an impressive individual. He plays lead guitar in Modest Mouse. He plays bass guitar in MGMT. You remember them? There's no way you don't. Let me play a couple clips, okay? There were two songs that if you were alive on this planet, what was that, 2009 or something? When these songs came out? Oh my God, dude. You knew about MGMT. So here's a reminder. Ah, see? It's all coming back, dude. That fucking bass line. Legendary. Love that song. And, of course, probably their biggest hit, the song called Kids. Here's a clip from that. MGMT. Legendary stuff. Like, I saw them open up for Paul McCartney at Fenway Park. They were massive. Modest Mouse, one of my favorite bands. So, and Simon has another band called Spiral Heads. It was a COVID project. Really rad three-piece. A lot of talent in this group, okay? You got Simon, of course. You got Handsome Jim Carroll. Handsome Jim of American Nightmare. He played in Piebald. He still shreds with Piebald from time to time. Also, in that band is Q of Doom Riders. So, go check out Spiral Heads. They are rad. You will not be disappointed. And they got a full-length record coming out this fall, I believe in November, and it was produced by the one and only, the legend, Walter Schreifels, okay? Walter Schreifels of Quicksand, Youth of Today, Gorilla Biscuits. Come on. So I'll remind you down the road when that comes out once again, but get stoked and go get familiar with the stuff they already got on Spotify. What else we got going on? Before we get to this interview, a lot has happened. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably already know. If you're one of my loyal, regular listeners, thank you so much. I love you. But didn't see my post on Instagram, then you might be saying to yourself, Dana, like, what the fuck? You're in between tours right now. I thought this was when you're going to keep up with the podcast and give us like one episode a week. Well, I had another setback, okay? Dude, long story short, I fucking took a really gnarly <laughs> spill off my skateboard. I fell like a ragdoll. I fell so hard. I broke my collarbone. I broke a rib. I hit the back of my head really hard on the ground. Got a concussion. I fucked up my neck. I did this like two weeks ago or so, maybe three weeks ago. And up until two days ago, I was not able to even take my sling off on my own. And even like having someone help me is just excruciating, like torturous 
humorous pain. This is a tough one. I've, I've had some bad breaks. I broke my humerus in half before. I broke the humeral head off of my humerus another time. Like literally broke my shoulder off of like the fucking, like off. Like that was probably the worst injury I've ever had. That one hurt. They all like hurt in a real bad type of way, but in their own unique way. This one hit different, the collarbone fucking sucks, dude. Over the last couple of days, I've turned a major corner. Like I can actually edit my podcast now and like use the mouse. I couldn't even use my computer mouse before. I was laying in bed, just suffering for, you know, a couple of weeks. And that first week, really after the break, I was literally seeing how long I could hold my piss. And I know that's like not good. You're not supposed to do that. But that's how painful it was for me to even just like try to get out of bed and walk, you know, 10 feet to the bathroom. So this has been really rough. Things are on the up and up now. Still a long recovery road, but I'm grateful that it wasn't closer because I'm going on tour with the front bottoms. It's exactly six weeks from when I injured myself. What if I did that a week before? I'd be fucked and they'd be fucked. It would suck, all right? So, you know, a little silver lining there. And also, dude, I told you I hit the back of my head. I hit the ground so hard. Like, if you think about it, I don't know how I didn't hit my face. Like, I fell forward, you know? Like, I broke my collarbone on the right side, my right-hand side, and then I broke the first rib underneath, like, straight down from the collarbone, like that top rib there. And I like got a huge bruise on my right hip somehow, like the back. But basically I fell forward, obviously, because I smashed my fucking collarbone in my rib. So how did I hit the back of my head? If you think about that, I should have hit my face probably. I don't know. It all happened so fast. Some lady like saw it. She came out. It was in the parking lot. I was up at my ski condo in New Hampshire, kid, just sticking around. I was working on a podcast episode and I just wanted to take a break. I was like, oh, let me just take the skateboard out and just like, I was doing nothing, dude. It was like, like a freak thing. So some lady comes running out of like one of the condos. She's like, oh my God, are you okay? And like, I stood up and I, I tried to talk and I couldn't, like, I couldn't get words out. I just kind of grunted <laughs> like, and like, just, I was like walking in like little circles and I was just like, Ugh, uh, like so fucking disoriented, dude. But yo, had I hit my face and not the back of my head, which I know the back of the head is bad too. Concussions and shit. It's like CTE injury shit. You know what I mean? Like that's scary. But I am grateful in a way because I miraculously did not smash my face. If I did, I promise you, this is how hard I hit the ground. Like I know for sure I would have broke my nose, probably would have lost some teeth, broke a cheekbone, broke my jaw. I would have broke my fucking face. I'm telling you, dude. So could have been a lot worse, right? I don't know. So that's what's been going on with me, dude. I've just been trying to heal up. What else? Before we get to the interview, go to www.plugyourholes.com for all of your body jewelry needs. Plugyourholes.com and for a 15% discount off of your entire order. At the checkout, you're going to enter a promo code. The code is TWNPOD. No spaces, one word. All right, I'm babbling enough here. Simon O'Connor, you're a funny bastard, dude. I hope to talk to you or better yet, cross paths with you on the road soon. Enjoy.
dude, today on the podcast, we got Simon O'Connor. I'm going to try to do this introduction proper. All right. So most notably and currently, you play in both MGMT and Modest Mouse. However, you've been playing in bands your whole life. I know you from Simon Doom because you guys played with Piebald a few years back. But also there's Tulsa Doom, Amazing Baby, Lilies, Spiral Heads. I know I'm missing some stuff. What else we got? Um, Those are, those are the big guys. Spiral Heads is kind of a mutation of Simon Doom. It's also with Jim Carroll and uh, Sky Q plays in Doom Riders. I played in this band Karoma for a little bit. I don't know. Just a lot of stuff. I, I always forget. But you seem to have kind of nailed it pretty much. But yeah. How, How you doing, doing man? Jinx. <laughs> good. I'm good. I'm just noticing that Bud Light guitar in the background. And I was just saying that I uh, I have a similar guitar, except it's a Budweiser proper guitar that like uh, my friend Will MGMT gave me for my birthday. Uh, I think he got it like antique store for 80 bucks. And it was kind of like my joke guitar, like my kind of throwaway, like I'll play it for like shit luck or something like that. Because if I play it on any song that requires any sort of dynamics, it just sounds like shit, like it's for shredding exclusively. And so I would just like have it, uh, you know, in the stand for one song, then sometimes just like drop it. It was kind of my throw around guitar, like I imagine smashing it one day. (laughs) Recently, Isaac from Modest Mouse, uh, so a lot of my stuff is in uh, their studio in Portland in between tours, and he was doing inventory and he found out that that guitar is actually 45 hundred dollars which makes it my most expensive instrument by far so now i have to uh <laughs> rethink the way i treat it and maybe is the uh punchline of having a kind of a funny looking beer guitar better than having forty five hundred dollars you know maybe not i feel like there's no wrong answer like it would be kind of cool if you just held on to it and busted it out once in a while but you know if you sold it for four grand that would be a pretty penny as well there's no wrong answer i think it's true. I could buy four. No, I could buy. <laughs> let's do some math here. I'm going to say 10, no, 20 matchable guitars with that. You know what I mean? Totally. I'm not a guitar player. Like I said, my uncle won this like at a bar or something. And he was like, hey, you want this? He's like getting rid of stuff. And I was like, sure, I'll just hang it up. Nice little uh, backdrop and a conversation piece, clearly. Yeah. I mean, it's really good for playing kind of like, you know, Eruption by Van Halen or something like that. But I also mean like literal. <laughs> like smashable guitar meaning like if uh, i'm you know feeling funky i will smash it but now i won't because that's a lot of money and i'm not trent reznor if you know what i mean i Uh, know what you mean but i bet it's still somewhat tempting to just smash it (laughs) i think smash everything really (laughs) dude simon so this is uh really cool because i'll just say how we met man um back in it was 2017 piebald was doing this was right after they really reunited and really as i was quote unquote when i first started touring with them i was still kind of just following them around at this point i think it was the second tour i had ever done with them but i remember simon doom opened for piebald it was like connecticut in new york and maybe one other show i can't he did at least a couple shows with us with handsome jim of course who plays played in piebald still does play in piebald when he's around but that was where we met and you guys were just really rad and uh i definitely got to bring up this story man uh, i punished you dude i, <laughs> I you left. gotta remind me of this because I, I i do vaguely remember <laughs> it but i don't remember how my parents got involved so we were playing smaller venues and we're all homies like you know handsome jim and you guys and the piebald guys so sharing green room space and stuff like that and uh somehow like, i had this denim jacket that ended up with your shit 
And I didn't notice until after the show. I was like, oh shit, I lost my jacket. And I was actually relieved that it ended up with you. But what it ended up happening was it ended up with your stuff. And then somehow maybe no one claimed it. I don't know if I said anything about it for a while. I was just like talking to the pieball guys about it. And uh, I think Aaron was like, well, maybe one of the Simon Doom guys like ended up with like it could be on their van, dude. You don't even know. But by the time I brought it up, I think it was too late. I don't know how it ended up at your parents because we were playing in New York. And I think your parents maybe lived or live in New York. This is my theory. This is this is not based on fact, but this is how I can make sense of this. <laughs> Our van was probably my parents' car. Did you ever get in the car? Let's call it a van to make it sound cool. But uh, <laughs> I feel like maybe you got in there for a second. I don't think so. Maybe not. That's strange. Um, it could so, have just been a dummy check, like, oh, someone's jacket, snag. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we were all wearing head-to-toe denim at the time, you know. <laughs> It was part of the uh, torque credentials. That was, that was 2017, man. That was what was going on. <laughs> um, but I just felt so bad because it was my favorite jacket. And uh, and I just like kept hitting you up. I was like punishing you. Uh, you're a busy guy and it's definitely not the most important thing going on in your life. And But apparently it was for me at that time. But you did come through. One of your parents had to like ship it to me and stuff. So it was, I do remember that was the time when like, I was on kind of three tours at the same time. I was doing an MGMT tour and had a little break and then did the Tulsa Doom tour and then flew from that and did those Simon and Doom pieball shows and flew back to the Tulsa Doom tour, then flew back to the MGMT tour. So I was like in wow. and out, you know? So that sounds like the kind of uh, mental mindset that would take a jean jacket. So I'm going to blame this on me now because I feel like with that sort of brain, I remember kind of like, <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of sleeping in airports. It was, it was, I was pretty frazzled but yeah i think my parents who are good at shipping things because they're from the times of yore probably got it back to you but you still have it <laughs> i do yeah man i absolutely do but it's at the point where like you go to like reach in like the side pockets and like another hole behind that pocket has created like just a big rip just from me putting my hand in that pocket so, oh, much. Yeah. so it's, it's all patched up and like yeah. just seasoned you know what i mean and it said disco stud on the back, right? <laughs> disco stew. <laughs> no, I have, a, I have a leather jacket that I've had forever and it looks good. Same sort of thing where like all the uh, the lining, all the pockets. So basically if you put something in the pocket, it'll just migrate around the jacket and you'll have to kind of like reach into the shoulder and like shake it. Like it's just like, fuck, you know, any sort of like hotel key. I'm like, well, it's kind of uh, near my like right shoulder blade right now. <laughs> like um, This particular one, the hole I'm talking about or the rip, it just goes straight to the ground so i'd like go to put like my phone in my pocket all of a sudden like you hear that just awful sound of your phone like just hitting the fucking pavement well now we're talking jackets um <laughs> speaking of holes in pockets holes in pants pockets are the worst right because you try to put something in there and then suddenly it's like you have to shake it out of your leg you know what i mean i do know what you mean dude down your thigh feels weird <laughs> yeah. I've been wearing joggers lately. I did not discover the world of joggers until mid-2022, like last year. Oh, wow. You can sleep in them. You yeah. can play a show in them. You can work in them. I'm wearing them right now. There's nothing better. Wait, do, you, do you feel confused when you wear them? I don't want to cut you off. I have a weight system. Somebody usually wears jeans. I know if I'm missing something because there's this, I feel a lightness in my left pocket means I'm missing my keys. I feel a lightness in my back right pocket. I'm missing my wallet. Back left pocket, missing my phone. But the joggers or track pants, they don't have the same wallet system. So everything's going to the sides. If that, you know. 
but the freeing and comfortability and also it still looks like you know you still look cool it's still stylish and they fit nicer than even like maybe any pair of jeans i've had so i would say it's worth it i don't like shit in my pockets anyway i think that's why a lot of people are always like holding their phones or clipping their keys to their pocket i don't have a wallet like i just do like one credit card one license and some cash if i can avoid carrying anything else on me i do how do you feel about a, a, a purse, a man purse? Like if I'm doing merch or something, like a fanny pack, you know, like um, do mm -hmm. I go around wearing a fanny pack on a daily basis? Absolutely not. But if I'm at a festival or like doing a show, yes. What are you thinking as far as a, a purse? Uh, I was just thinking about a, a woman's purse. But uh, do you know that in England and Australia, they call them bum bags because fanny means vagina. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I actually hopped on an Australian podcast uh, recently. And uh, yeah, I think I said fanny back and they started giggling. And I was like, what's so funny? So you're canceled in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, um, we could talk about so much, but it is important to establish where we connected in 2017. What is it? 2023 now. Simon Doom was a very, we were really new at that point. I mean, we'd all been playing with other acts forever, but the show in Connecticut was our first show outside of New York ever. And so, yeah, it was really fun. I mean, Simon Doom was a, it was kind of like a hard one to pin down, you know? Um, I just basically wrote an album's worth of songs that sounded like stuff I listened to. And a lot of it was kind of made in the studio as opposed to sort of getting the band together and playing and jamming stuff out. So all of our songs kind of sounded different. So it was hard to find a good match uh, for bands to tour with. But and I remember when Jim suggested Piebald, I was just like, let's see how this goes. And I didn't know. I mean, I knew I knew the hits. I didn't really know Piebald, their music that well, but it did go really well. I'm not sure how the audience received us because like we would go from like GBH to Gary Newman to uh, the Yardbirds. You know what I mean? Like and there's just kind of like keyboard. Well, although the actually we didn't have a keyboard player, but we had a lot of like, sort of like keyboard pedals. So the guitarist would do those parts. Um, but yeah, it was fun and I'm glad that you guys had us and it was really great and I would love to do it again. Absolutely, man. So you joined MGMT in 2015, is that correct? Yeah, somewhere in there, yeah. I had no idea you were in MGMT. I don't know, that just blows my mind because I had seen, I guess this was before your time, but I saw MGMT open up for Paul McCartney at Fenway Park. Like, that's insane to me. Like, what the fuck? I know, I know. I, know. I, I missed all the good years. I, I went to school with the guys, the main two, Andrew and Ben, and also Will Berman. The drummer went, uh, went there too. And so in college, like, I was in the band and I lived with them and we would make music together and perform. And then we all graduated together and I was uh, living with Andrew, the singer, in Brooklyn. And MGMT were kind of just like a party band like uh like their shows in college were like play the ghostbusters theme song then you know, talking heads cover and then like a song that would eventually become kids for 20 minutes and like blackout drunk and that was a set you know but then they recorded uh i mean this is all readily available information but you know, they recorded an ep that kind of made its way to someone from columbia records and you know they were not an active band i don't think they had ever played outside of maybe one or two shows outside of our school you know, and I was kind of hustling with different bands at the time in New York and like Andrew was just kind of chilling and I was trying to get, you know, whatever I was doing signed and really go for it. And I remember Andrew being like, hey, I got a MySpace message from Columbia. And I'm like, that's a bot. I don't think I had that word yet, but I was like, oh, no, no that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and within like six months, they were, you know, one of the most talked about bands like Kanye West and Jay-Z were like side stage at Coachella watching them. And 
but at that time still like you know i was had just started amazing baby and we were getting some traction too so i kind of was like i'd rather kind of see this out i regretted that decision in some ways although now i don't because i do think it kind of taught me how this shit works it allowed me to meet a lot of people and i think eventually amazing baby actually got me the position of modest mouse not mgmt Wow. But yeah, uh, so when MGMT had an opening in 2015, like they're all my best friends and, you know, why not? I miss the fun years, quote unquote, heavy quotations fun. But like, it's also nice to be in the band when they kind of knew who they were, knew how this worked. Things weren't as chaotic as they were at the beginning. This sort of like social and party part of it was less of a thing and everyone was kind of on the cusp of adulthood and it was more of a predictable it was a more of a predictable experience in a very unpredictable profession so it was a nice time for me to come in yeah timing wise it was kind of like i remember it was pretty relentless because as a band's ascending you know this is the schedule for the year but the bigger you get they want you to come back to the same city play a bigger venue come back and then play all the radio festivals and like make appearances at like fashion week parties and well that sounds like fun like i already had a one and a half year old kid at the time and i i wanted to know what my schedule was going to be for the next couple months and not have any of the surprises and uh so i thought it was a time where i could do that and it wouldn't ruin my personal life you know it also gave me time to do simon doom record my own record play shows the day the simon doom album came out i was like in europe with mgmt and i was still there for a month so it was hard my own project had to definitely take a back seat to mgmt but um nonetheless having like months off where i wouldn't have to worry about finding work because i already had work you know um and yeah. i had time to to write and record and and be creative with my friends was cool and i don't think that would have happened in the same way had i been in the band from 2008 on it definitely uh burned those guys out a bit and kind of like and i, I feel this too and i'm honestly modest mouse tour like motherfuckers and like i do find myself when i'm home like no music please you know what i mean totally but now i'm on a kind of a break and getting back to it so Let's go way back, Simon. I'd like to learn about you and your upbringing, what people around you were listening to as far as like early memories when you were a kid. Like what's the first thing that really clicked in your head that you fell in love with? And also, I mean, it should be mentioned that so you play bass guitar in MGMT. You play yeah. lead guitar in Modest Mouse. What was the first instrument you picked up and how you just kind of started playing shows and jamming with people, you know? Yeah, well, I was always into music. You know, my parents aren't particularly musical, but, um, you know, they grew up in the 60s and 70s. So those are the records we heard in the house. And the first thing I gravitated towards uh, were soundtracks, which is interesting because I do that as well now. You know, I would uh, audio tape. I had this little kind of like Fisher Price tape recorder and I would audio tape movies from the TV just to like listen to the soundtracks. And then eventually I would ask for the actual soundtrack. And, and like one of the one of the big turning points is when Batman, the first one came out, not the first one. Yes, the first movie, not the wacky fucking 60s shit, but uh, the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton movie. And there were two soundtracks and one was the uh, Danny Elfman original score, which is what I wanted. But then the other one was the Prince album and they both had the Batman logo on it. So I got the Prince album by mistake and I just listened to it back to front like nonstop. Um, got really into that. And then the real turning point for me is uh, I was obsessed with Bill and Ted 
Ted. I love that movie uh, to the point where I had a framed photo of Bill and Ted by my bed. And uh, when my friends would come over, I would tell them they were my brothers. <laughs> um, but I got the Bogus Journey soundtrack. And obviously there's like you know, Winger and Slaughter and some of that 80s shit. But then there was also Primus and in particular Faith No More had a song. And it's like 1990 when I was six or seven. And I remember kind of being pretty obsessed with the Faith No More song because it was unlike anything I'd ever heard. It was like scary and strange. It was heavy metal, but it wasn't. Um, there's piano on it. And uh, and I, you know, I was too young to sort of, and there's no internet or anything, not that I would be able to use it at the time, to kind of like place the sound. But when I heard Nirvana on the radio, I was like, okay, this is it. This is like that. And just became absolutely obsessed with Nirvana. Sorry, how old are you now? I'm 39. 39. Okay, we're pretty close. I'm 37. So, so yeah, what, what are we talking, like 92 now-ish? Yeah, 92. So I was like eight. And uh, I, you know, kind of just absolutely consumed all things Nirvana. There was not a lot around, which allowed me to sort of like, I wanted to hear songs. It's like after Nevermind came out before Incesticide, like I was like, I got Bleach. And I was like, I want to hear more. And then there was like looking through record stores. And I, could, I found like Sub Pop 200, which was like a comp with a, the Nirvana song Dive on it. But it also had like L7 and Mud Honey and, and Tad and Dickless and Screaming Trees and stuff like that. So I found out about all those bands there was like a video accompaniment that i found uh my grandparents lived in oakland california even though i grew up in new york city so i would go out there uh for you know uh holidays and shit and uh new york was really dangerous at that time like especially where i lived so i had very very little kind of independence but berkeley oakland was safe and i could sort of at the age of 9 10 walk down you know the hill to like telegraph avenue and go by rasputin or amoeba and buy myself and kind of look around and, and like found this VHS copy of like, I, I forget what it was, a sub pop sampler that had like the dwarves on it and really scary video shit that kind of scared the shit of me. Uh, the head coats that had this uh, song Girl of Matches, which is this like woman sort of like simulating sex with like a lit gigantic match, you know, and the dwarves at the song Drugstore, which is like a lot of the videos were sort of like vagrants in the Pacific Northwest and shit. But um, when I, I was 10 i ended up seeing nirvana what one of their last shows yeah. get the fuck out of here yeah it was fun because i was just like driving around my parents and i heard an ad for the show on the radio and begged to go and it was a big sort of issue in my family where my mom didn't want me to go it was on new year's eve because i was too young i remember there being a kind of a huge sort of heated talk in the other room about it and i found out later my dad who had been paying a bit more attention to sort of what i was listening to as an adult realized he, he that this band in particular this person might not be out around that long and that this might wow. be my last chance to see him and he was right because it was their second to last show in the united states ever and uh but then that was that was chokebore butthole surfers played who had uh videos of like uh of medical operations projected on a screen behind them and I, I remember i was so young that like i literally hid my eyes for the whole show and then they had stand-up comedy by bobcat goldthwaite and then they played and they played for over two hours i learned uh later actually from courtney love who I met once and talked about this, uh, Kurt was sober. It was like these two weeks where he was completely sober and he was happy. And he, I remember he was jumping around. He was talking to the crowd. Like it was like nothing you can almost see, you know, online of Nirvana performances. And it was just absolutely incredible. So after that, I was just like, that's it. That's what I want to do. You know? Wow. So where specifically in uh, New York are you from? Uh, I grew up um, in Morningside Heights, which was kind of 
in the 80s and early 90s more more like spanish harlem than the upper west side but then uh, moved up closer to columbia so it's sort of like within the bubble of columbia university um but still if you went like a block east it was right near the project complex that actually created and controlled uh most of the crack cocaine in new york city at the time but um so i grew up up there once i came like 11 or 12 i started to take the train down to the west village and sort of <laughs> generation records and stuff like that and, isn't that crazy now yeah. what 11 or 12 year old is hopping on the train right now it's that's a pastime right yeah yeah special time but yeah please go on and so then I would eventually like migrate east, you know what I mean? And like the St. Mark's, but without telling my parents, ABC No Rio. But, you know, Generation Records was incredible because like I didn't have any money. I wouldn't really buy anything, but I would just literally kind of like watch people read the bands on their jackets and like kind of like remember that and sort of kind of have a, I had a list, you know, that I would just I was just obsessed. I just what was, what was the list? What do you remember? Uh, I remember the first sort of band on a jacket that kind of made an impact because I remember my my parents who were with me at the time it was when I was alone was Blitz because so my mom grew up in, in, in London and so she was there for you know the migration of like the skinheads from like the rock steady rude boys to like national front white supremacists so you know any sort of reference to um, World War II would kind of heighten her awareness and Blitz is a reference. So she she kind of assumed that this was like a Nazi band and they're not. So Blitz was the first one I remember exploited for sure because I had the skull of the Mohawk. But it was all scary, but exciting at the same time. Getting into punk rock was just it was an absolutely terrifying experience. <laughs> but also exhilarating. I feel like before you fully figured it out, before you fully figure that like, actually these are the people you have to watch out for and these are the people who uh, are totally chill. I mean, it was never fully safe because like the whole idea was like anti-authoritarian and, and lawless and, and which also attracts people, unfortunately, who, and it's also filled with kids, you know, who take advantage of like a bunch of kids who aren't going to call the cops or tell their parents about anything that happens, you know? There was that, but then there was also just like such a great community. And uh, I've been playing guitar since I was eight and I started a band when I was about 12 with some older punks called Social Disease. And then our singer got deported after our first show. Wait, we, well, how old are you? 12? I was, well, I was tw well, 12 to 13. And then I, uh, I think we were pretty good. Like I had been playing guitar for a long time in that small little world, even though I was only 12 and 13. Like, And I also started playing guitar, like trying to be slash you know so i've learned kind of like how to solo and do things like that and a lot of the other bands especially kind of kid bands learn to play their instruments as they form the band so i feel like i stood out a bit because i already knew how to play as soon as that band ended this girl leora who was in a band called the mishap who are also awesome who was in my mind a lot older than me but that's because like i think she was like 18 and i was 14 but you know now it's not a big deal we wanted to form a band so we formed Thulsa doom that was kind of like the first uh you know we recorded a seven inch and put up my first seven inch when i was 14 our second one when i was 15 and uh played a couple of shows you know did like a tour quote unquote just like three you know a show in boston and then show in connecticut you know, did that for a while. But I like like I said, I was never exclusively into punk. Even like I was into jazz and things like just like all different types of stuff. But New York at the time in my high school, there was like one other kid who played guitar. No one had bands. There wasn't really a, a kind of a kid indie rock scene there. That it was like it was it was the, you know, 
I mean, this is this is probably my opinion, you know, uh, but like kind of the golden era, not age of hip hop in, in New York with like Hell yeah. everybody I knew, all my friends, like that was what they listened to hip hop. And I listened to hip hop too. Yeah, but yeah. the only guitar scene was the punk scene. And um, I was getting pretty bored of that. And by the time I went to college, I was kind of like, I was also writing graffiti a lot of the time, which is kind of this, that's what happens when you're from New York. That's and, pretty cool. So you, you're like a, you can do that shit? Well, I was terrible, but I, I would, I would kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I would do it a lot. But like, I became more interested in that than playing music, because in my mind, like, it was either punk or like hip hop, because I didn't really know anyone who did anything else until I got to college and met uh, the MGMT kids and kids who weren't from New York who had been playing in bands and stuff like that, and that kind of opened up my musical world in a way and realized that there was like actually a lot of other shit going on and it got me fully back into it and you know and here i am <laughs> dude that's a fascinating backstory my first question would be you said before that your parents aren't really musicians or into music but i get the sense that it's in your blood somewhere so where do you think that comes from not like music per se but i think that my family's open-mindedness towards it um, good example was me being allowed to go see Nirvana. Like, I think yeah. them not poo-pooing it as like a hobby or kind of like a some sort of teenage phase. They took it seriously, took me interest in it seriously. And they definitely allowed me to do things that they were uncomfortable with because it wasn't like, I mean, when I told them I wanted to be a Ninja Turtle or when I, you know, when I told them I wanted to be a professional baseball player or a garbage man, I did really want to be because that shit was fucking cool, man. Just hanging on the side of the truck, right? Hell yeah. Tossing cans in there and you just fucking pull his lever and this machine just crushes shit. Like that's Just dope. grabbing that handle, like drive away. It looks like a superhero, right? Yeah. 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 But I think they, they realized it was a really true passion and they identify with that and fed that passion and did things against their own best interest because they were taking a chance that this would work out. And like, I thank them for that. So I think that the, there's not necessarily music in the family, but there is like the appreciation of art and a career in the arts that I think that a lot of other people I know, people who are professional musicians, like people who are incredibly successful still have, you know, a parent who's waiting for them to kind of stop all this bullshit and get a real job, even though they're like <laughs> making more money than their parents ever had. It's interesting. And when I meet people, especially sort of people of a certain generation, you know, friends, parents, and they ask me what I do, when I say musician, like I could just see they're sort of like their respect for me just drop, you know? And I almost totally. want to be obnoxious, like, no, 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 but I'm a real one. <laughs> but like, right, right. you kind of can't. So I think there's just the idea of somebody who pursues a career in the arts. It's very hard to find a support mechanism for that. I mean, I think it's also difficult for somebody who's not, who doesn't have a natural interest in sort of like popular music to even understand what equals success, you know? And like, what's the difference between me playing in a cover band at a wedding versus like me playing like a rock slide or whatever it's called, rock skilled festival in Denmark. Like, it's not like if MTV was still MTV and they could turn on MTV and then see me on it, then they'd understand. But there's still, there's still people I know, friends, friends, parents, family members who I feel like I have to completely uh, explain and excuse what I do every time I see them. Like I almost get nervous and like come up with a little list of like. <laughs> Even you know, still, dude, dude, you're an MGMT and Modest Mouse. Like what more do you need to say? Yeah, but I mean, like, but I'm not, you know, I'm not in uh, the Beatles, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs>
So whatever. Are you sure some of that's not in your head? Because I would feel like at this point, I'm sure a lot of it's in my head. But it's like because of the way that I they treated me when I was you know a teenager, saying the same shit I'm saying now. It's like I'm still that guy, you know. Like I'm totally. still trying to prove to them that like I'm serious about this, and I'm sure it's in my head. But like you know, maybe the damage was already done, and I kind of like perpetually just like I'm trying to convince certain people in my lives that yes, this is an actual career. It's very hard to explain to the bank. And uh, <laughs> so, how come you made ten percent of this year of what you made last year? I'm like well, that's just the way it works. <laughs> you know, luckily, like most people have some understanding of music. Most people listen to music. Most people have music in their lives in some capacity. Uh, my my partner is um in in fashion, and she does incredibly well. But fashion is something that is kind of a mystery to most people like why are some clothes so expensive why are some clothes cheap like what is success in fashion everyone wears clothes but it almost seems like it's almost like if I was an actor and I was in movies that were big and shown at theaters people would understand that but if being in a band that plays big venues and big theaters still doesn't make the same amount of sense to people as some other kind of like easier to calculate professions that makes sense it makes perfect sense you know it's funny i think about this a lot man because dude at the end of the day and this is almost like a, a meditative practice but if you can truly just block out whatever all these people are saying and thinking that we're talking about right now what the fuck matters it really doesn't matter there's power in not thinking but what were you saying I was saying, but it's, I think there's also, you know, I think it's important to uh, to feel humbled by people, like no matter what you do or what you've accomplished and like to be kind of like checked, you know, and I also think success in some people's eyes is, you know, not in other people's and sort of like, I'm happy about where I am. I'm happy that like, I can kind of have this experience and play music for a living, but not have to sort of like deal with all the other bullshit and like I don't have to worry about like celebrity you know what I mean and things like that and, and people wanting things from you to a certain degree that like other people I know like Isaac has to worry about and uh, Andrew and Ben have to worry about in the same way where I can kind of like have the good creative part of it but not have to deal with sort of the annoying like vetting who you hang out with and feeling like people aren't being honest with you in the same way so i do think it's like if i was at a place where i believe that no one would question my success like i, I think that would be too stressful i think it's like good to be checked and remain human and be sort of a different person in other different people's eyes if that makes sense it makes perfect sense. I like what you said there is like being checked. Being humble is important. Being grateful is important. They definitely go pretty much hand in hand. But that checked thing is is huge. And I feel as if to make it about me because I am projecting my own shit onto you. But one thing for me is I am not a musician. I mean, except for maybe a killer cowbell player. <laughs> but I am such a fan, just like we all are, just like you are, like just such a fan of these bands and this scene. And so, dude, for me, driving a fucking box truck overnight for a band like Bayside, for example, or the stories of VAR, that is like the biggest honor. Does it suck sometimes? Of course, if I'm driving the fucking 70, you know, between Salt Lake and Denver and, you know, this fucking Mack trucks tipped over through the snowstorm and I don't even have chains on my tires. Like, but you know what? It's like almost like a rite of passage. It's like, fuck yeah. Like I want to, I want to earn that. I want to like prove it to people because I don't have that ability. I don't have that gift to maybe make this beautiful music, but if I can be a small part of it, it's everything to me. And 
like my dad, maybe he doesn't get it, but if I wasn't able to sit where I am right now in this basement and talk to you and him provide that, you know, I wouldn't be able to go out on these tours. So even yeah. though he doesn't get it, you know, my parents are super supportive. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, you, you touched on something that, that I think is really important to me, which is um, the fandom sort of in being a musician, where like, as like such an obsessive fan of music myself, I find that that was really what kept me going way above and beyond talent. The MGMT guys, like, like my group of friends, like we're all such obsessive, like fans of like encyclopedic knowledges of like, you know, whatever we're interested in. And I would much rather meet someone who is in the industry and whatever, who is a super fan with minimal talent than meet somebody with like maximum talent who was not a super fan. In my travels, I've met people who are in bands that I or, you know, musicians whose music I like and then kind of coming across them, I realized that like they're just very talented. You know, there's people I know who like wanted to be famous more than they necessarily wanted to be musicians. They just happened to be really good at this. So they took that. But I would much rather have somebody who kind of would be happy by being involved in music in any capacity and just got lucky and, and happens to be uh, to create music that people want to pay money to go see instead of somebody who's doesn't really know where they stand in this world and doesn't really care. They just like the adoration and uh, the road to fame. I'm not a huge fan of Dave. I mean, obviously like Nirvana, I'm not a big Foo Fighters fan, but I respect Dave Grohl because he's a super fan. That's why he's in every fucking documentary. Henry Rollins, my opinion, ruined Black Flag, but he's a fucking super fan. Ian McKay is a super fan. My buddy, you know, Damien from Fucked Up is a super fan, you know, like, and I just, I love that, like, the desire to know and know and know and know more and kind of like just know what's going on out there and experience everything that's within your interests and feel genuinely grateful and lucky to be able to sort of be a part of it in the performance and, and creative aspect, which I think is also like a one of the things that really attracted me to punk. You know, this has been said millions of times before, but like if you're part of a scene, like you're making zines, you're booking shows, you're like making shirts, you're in a band, you're whatever, like working with a band. Like it was very much like this is a kind of collective. This is you're either a performer or you're the audience. It's, it's kind of one and the same to me, whether you're on stage or whether you're like on the side of the stage or whether you're selling shirts in the back or doing the door, like it's the same shit, you know? hundred percent, man. I think I can relate in the same way that you were talking about, like looking back on those MGMT days that, you know, those were your homies, but you kind of missed out on some of those like big moments for them. That's how I feel about say like Warp Tour. When I was like 20, I should have just showed up at the Warp Tour and fucking hopped on. I know I could have. So sometimes I have regret because I could have been way more involved. In the future scares the shit out of me because I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. Like sure. in the future, I have no idea. So I'm trying not to stress out about it, but how do you not? I mean, that's the same for everybody. I mean, there's not really a retirement plan in this business, you know, <laughs> yeah. with few exception. But like, I think that there's a common misconception of like road crew, like, you know, oh, there's the band and then there's like the techs who are basically people who tried to be in bands and it didn't work out. And that's why they're doing what they're doing. And while that is occasionally true, for the most part, I've discovered that like everybody who's working within this team has wanted to do their specific job as much as the musicians themselves has wanted to do their specific job. Like the guitar techs, the front of house, or whoever, they're not like, well, I'll settle for this shit. But they're like, this is what I want to do. And they love it as much as like the, uh, you know, the singer loves singing, the drummer loves drumming. It's like the same sort of shit. It's the same success, the same doing 
what you want to do for a, a living like and that's so rare to have a job that you actually want to do it might not be the most stable thing it might not have the retirement plan that we were talking about earlier but like just to jump to a story so like Thulsa Doom as I was saying we still play which is hilarious like we still play a couple shows a year and uh, people would know like we'd play like Skull Fest in Pittsburgh I think that actually that was what we were playing like around the same time as the Pieball shows and I remember like this kind of sort of punk around my age from like, you know, still still in the scene from like the New York scene who lives there. Like I, I occasionally would get this where people would know I'm an MGMT. They, you know, and they'd be like sort of treat me a bit like a like, oh, look, who's like sightseeing. You're done, you know, you look at the tourist, you're like a sellout. And I just remember thinking like, what do you do? Like you work in a fucking mail room, like you hate your fucking job. Like I'm at least doing what I've always wanted to do. So isn't that punk rock? Like, isn't that if like being in a band that's like, you know, successful beyond the punk scene, like, is that selling out or is like working a fucking job that you despise selling out? You know what I mean? Like, dude, yeah, totally. So like, that concept was, was always kind of, it was always very, uh, I don't even know if selling out exists anymore in this day and age. I think those days are a little bit dead. Like that sort of attitude's a bit outmoded. Like, you know, you think about like turnstile, no one's fucking calling them a sellout. People are celebrating the fact that they played a late night, you know. I love this perspective. People do still hate on turnstile, but I fucking love that band. But not to the not to the sense where they would be completely rejected by their scene for that. You know what I mean? Like people do hate on turnstile, and I guarantee you most people who hate on turnstile are over thirty. <laughs> Oh, 100%. They're, they're unbelievable. I love well, them. They're not going against their morals or values or happiness or taste to make money. And you know what? Green Day never did that either. Green Day always sounded the same, man. And That's like, right. And like, you have like, you know, guys from Neurosis still being like Green Day or fucking rad. Like if, if you're making a gigantic sort of like shift in sound and you there are obviously examples of selling out. But I, I also feel like if you're selling out, you didn't really care that much to begin with, because if you didn't really like what you were doing, if, if you could just ditch everything that you were doing and stood for and identified by to make money, then you didn't fucking like it from the beginning. And it doesn't really matter. But like, I just think that like, if you're doing what you love and people are paying you money for it or decide to like, fuck, like, what are you supposed to do? You know? Yeah. Uh, do you, do you want to do a pee break? Sure. That's one. All right. Yeah. I didn't even know you were in Modest Mouse. I knew you were in MGMT. Like, I remember learning that after the tour we did together. And I was like, holy shit, that's fucking right. I had no idea you were in Modest Mouse. I was side stage for your set at Boston Calling. I didn't even know that was you oh, on really? stage. Yeah. I had no idea that was you on stage. You know, I hadn't seen you in a while. I, I didn't know. And I love Modest Mouse. And, you know, you have those bands 
The Strokes is like this for me too, where a band I've loved forever, for whatever reason, just every time they fucking come around, I, I can't go to the show for one reason or another. That was yeah. Modest Mouse for me. So this past year at Boston Calling, I was like, yes, I was stage right. Like um, the Weezer W was like right next to me. You're in the opposite side of, as me. Okay. Um, I was stage left. And yeah, there was a, do you remember there were people passing out in the crowd? It was like super fucking hot. It got to the point where there was like, I thought we were going to have to stop playing for a little bit because people were like, it was it was getting rugged. But then people were helping each other out. They were giving, the like, security was good, giving people water and shit. But that was a that was a toasty show. But it was fun, man. Uh, I had never played Boston Calling. And we played it, Metallica played that night too. That's right. That's right. Weezer played, uh, I think, right after you, actually. Right after, yeah. Dude, I was standing right next to Rivers Cuomo. He's like sitting there with his guitar, like doing vocal warm ups, singing uh, Pink Triangle. And I literally had a beach ball that I like brought with me that I blew up and like wrote like Weezer on it. He was just staring at me, dude, with his like big fucking eyes. Like, who is this guy? Yeah. I don't know. They let me stay, but that whole thing was really cool for me. And uh, honestly, the highlight of my day, and this is no bullshit, my highlight of that day was Modest Mouse by far. Awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a good one. My girlfriend was there with some of her friends. So I also feel like, you know, I was like, I'm going to put on a really good show to impress her, you know? <laughs> so I'm more nervous in front of like three people I know than like 20,000 people I don't, honestly. But I think it's a good thing though, especially when, you know, Modest Mouse plays so many shows like that I found myself at points kind of like playing the set, not phoning it in, but like finding myself thinking about what I want for lunch or what, you know, things like that. But having sort of like familiar faces really kind of gets me in the game, so to speak. And had I known you were there, geez. <laughs> But yeah, that was, a, that was a really fun show. I think there was also like a big game on, like a Celtics game or something that was happening while Weezer were playing. And I felt right. bad for Weezer because there was definitely like cheers that had nothing to do with the set. <laughs> they did great considering, but like I've played shows like festivals in Europe, like, and the country of the place we're playing is, their game is on during our set and you're just like, it's fucking, the field is empty. It doesn't matter because like, that's just what's going on. I mean, that's Europe and that's fucking soccer and they go nuts. Like, but, you know, Boston goes nuts for their teams, too. Dude, I am a Boston psycho. I can tell you exactly what happened that day. I remember. First of all, it was a perfect weather day. The Red Sox were playing at home at Fenway Park. There was, I want to say, a playoff game. Yes. For the Celtics. It was a Sunday. It was a really big playoff game. And, uh, but I don't think Weezer's feelings were hurt. No. <laughs> I remember because I watched Weezer from the audience and I remember thinking like, I'm like, keep going, guys. It's OK. Like, you you're, you know, like you might notice a little bit of a strange silence sometimes and then a strange like burst of cheering that seems to not really <laughs> uh, work with the, the way your set's going. But like, just don't take it personally. I mean, they didn't. Yeah, they're professionals. But yeah, that was that was a fun festival. We're doing another festival I forgot about this. I'm glad you brought it. It's called In Between Days. It's in Quincy, Massachusetts. Dude, that's where my grandfather is from, Quincy. I have family from there, but um, yeah, headlining is Modest Mouse as well as Lord Huron. I don't know them at all. Do you? Yeah, I've I, I've heard the name. I think uh, I think it's kind of Bon Bonnie Varish, but I might be wrong. I don't know. Sunny Day Real Estate. That's pretty cool. There's this other band. They're called Weekend Friends. They're from Portland, Maine. It's... um. It's a three-piece. I'm spacing on their names. You got two females, guitar and bass, killer singers, and then this dude plays drums. And they opened for us 
uh, piebald back in 2019. They were thrown on this bill last second for like a, a holiday show. They stole the show. They were so good. So if you have the time, check out Weekend Friends. They're rad. I will. Uh, so wait, the festival is called In Between Days? Yes, it's called In Between Days. That's Quincy, fine. Massachusetts. I, I should probably like name the dates, shouldn't I? I gotta zoom. Dude, my eyes, I don't know about you, but my fucking eyes are getting bad. August 19th and 20th. Oh, Quincy, nice. Massachusetts, dude. It's basically Boston. Right, right, right. Well, I was just thinking, like, I feel like that's the third festival I've heard of that's named after a Cure song. Like, oh. just like Heaven. Oh, fuck, there's another one. Too. I, was just, I'm like, I was just thinking, like, when you said, I'm like, I wonder if the Cure are the band that have the most festivals named after their songs. Like, I wonder who, because, you know, I think that's sort of the trend these days to, like, just call an event after a kind of cool, popular song. We got maybe 20 minutes at best. So I got to get a few questions in here if that's cool. The first thing I want to ask is, you know, what is the coolest place you've been to, your favorite place you've been to outside the United States where you actually got, you know, some time, maybe a cool day off, unexpected, like, holy shit, like, I'm in Lisbon, Portugal, I got the day off, I'm going to go to this beach and like, fucking, this is rad. Like, you know, just what stands out when I say that? Well, Lisbon's great that you said that, like, but <laughs> Lisbon's so, it's like such a beautiful city that like, Every time I'm there, I'm like, this is so romantic. Like, it's almost making me feel weird that, like, the drummer and I are having, you know, martinis. <laughs> but uh, I had a day off in Hamburg. And I've never had a day off in Hamburg before. I've played there a couple of times last summer. And that was uh, really, really wonderful. Uh, Zagreb in Croatia is amazing. Played a festival there. It was just like... You know, I don't think I'd ever heard of Zagreb before. And this was, you know, about 10 years ago. But, like, that's such an amazing place. I mean, anywhere in Australia is pretty great. Byron, you know, we played this, uh, oh, fuck, what's it called? The Byron Bay. Hold on a second. I have the pass here. Under uh, in the grass. That was amazing. They put us up at, like, this sort of resort where it's just, like it's such a strange climate where, like, you're in the in the desert, but then you're suddenly in a rainforest, and then you're like in the, like a normal forest, and there's all these crazy animals. I just pretty amazing there. Like Osaka, I love Tokyo is great, but it's hectic. Osaka is kind of like people are a little ruder there, which as like a New Yorker, I kind of appreciate. Where I'm like, I know where I stand. <laughs> I know, I know that like they don't necessarily uh, have any interest in talking to me at this specific bar that's the size of the closet. Like I love Osaka. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I mean, but here's another thing is, and it's changing now, but like a lot of the, uh, the last 2021 and 2022 touring based on where people were, as far as sort of the pandemic, like places that I loved were kind of just shut down and, and then other places were wide open that I never really appreciated before. And uh, so sort of my kind of like, cool place meter had to be reset in a way because it was just hard to tell and i think a lot of places really change once they reopened i mean it's a different world now you know and i think that like there are places that i love that seem to kind of reopen with like sort of a different new attitude that didn't really it took some getting used to and other places that i always found boring kind of found interesting creative ways to reclaim their identity after like shutting down for so long so you asking me that question a couple of years ago, the answer would be different than it is now, you know? And it's also still changing because places are still kind of building themselves up again, you know? That was well said, man. It's definitely a, a different world. Um, I hope it's okay for me to ask about this. If it's not, I'll cut it out. I did pull some fan questions and almost every single one, um, you know, you tragically recently lost your drummer in Modest Mouse, Jeremiah Green. 
Um, are you comfortable with talking about that? And uh, sure. I don't even know what to say. I'm sorry for your loss, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's still really new. Um, obviously, if there's something that's kind of I feel is too personal, I'll I'll let you know because. I only feel um, comfortable speaking to a certain extent about this, but there's there's things that are should remain private forever, and there are things that I think that he would want people to know. So let me, yeah, let me know. Yeah, man, uh, it's hard not to get uh, choked up here, but I don't know, man. Just uh, how about some fond memories? Well, if you follow me on Instagram, I kind of I posted, which is uh, unlike me, kind of literally like with minutes after I found out because I just I had so much to say and I realized that I would have to say something and instead of sitting on it and then waking up the next morning with the sort of the guilt and the pressure of having to make a statement and having the words that I had in, uh, in my heart kind of convoluted and mutated by just sort of time and, and other thoughts, uh, I, I thought I would just sort of speak freely at the moment. Which I'm glad I did, because I could kind of move on and mourn privately afterwards. But, uh, you know, when I first... So I didn't know anyone in the band at all. I had no connection to them. The, the way I got the gig was their manager was the manager of Amazing Baby, my old band. And hadn't heard from him in years. And he just called me up, said, do you want to play guitar in Modest Mouse? And uh, Holy shit. immediately kind of like sort of wanted to say no. Because one thing is I had been at home on unemployment for like 18 months and kind of it just seemed like a lot. Um, but my girlfriend reminded me at the time that at this point I was currently unemployed, so I shouldn't be turning down work. Um, there was not anything uh, MGMT related on the horizon. So I did it. Um, and so I was immediately sent Isaac's number and Jeremiah's number as sort of the ambassadors and the founding members of the band uh, that I should speak to and kind of get to know. Called Isaac first. We spoke for maybe 13 to 15 seconds on the phone. Uh, He's with his kids, but, uh, you know, and then I called Jeremiah and we spoke for two and a half hours, you know, and that's just the kind of guy he was. And it was like, and I felt completely at ease. Like I was, you know, beyond the sort of band that like I, you know, not to be a dork, but like I used to listen to uh, Modest Mouse and literally pretend I was in the band when I was a teenager. They weren't real people to me. They were this like institution and, you know, and it was like being with MGMT, we had those contemporaries, but we would never sort of cross paths with Modest Mouse and Built to Spill or other bands like that. They just seemed like they were part of this whole other world that was much purer and had nothing to do with the internet and was just about like a real scene um, than anything I had done in like kind of the pop music world. And speaking to Jeremiah, like we had so much in common to the point where like he told me how he met Isaac, where Isaac had a, a distro, which is exactly kind of circling back to like the sort of being in the scene thing like he had a distro at shows and he would sell like ebullition records in particular and jeremiah said like how he met him was the first record he bought was this downcast record and they didn't print very many copies of it and i remember like i was at home and i'm like you mean this record and just pulled it out and i had like number 230 out of a 500 and i'm like that's so wild that we both had the, this record and we both agreed that we didn't really like it but the cover art was cool <laughs> Um, he was just so sensitive, like he would make sure that I felt like I belonged and that I was doing the right things. And like he could tell that sometimes I, I, I had no affirmation that, that what I was doing was good or better than what they had expected. And he would make sure that like I knew that he thought and Isaac thought that uh, I was doing a good job because they would talk and 
Isaac wouldn't necessarily like communicate that with me just because that's not really in his personality, but Jeremiah would make a point of doing that. And even about a year ago, there was like an interview with Johnny Marr and Isaac and there were a couple of statements that were misconstrued as Johnny Marr rejoining the band, you know, and I have to admit, like, I saw that online and a lot of publications sort of took that quote, which I think was about literally just sort of maybe like contributing to some songs at one point remotely, but decided that that actually meant that he was rejoining the band, which also meant that I would be fired because I'm technically I'm in, John, uh, you know, you're a hired gun kind of. Yeah, well, in a way, I was the ever-rotating position of lead guitarist, which had been occupied by uh, Johnny Marr at one point. So that if Johnny Marr was coming in, that means that I'm gone. And Johnny sure. made a point to call me and say, he's not joining the band. You're our guy. Like, don't worry. You know? Wow. It's funny because, like, I fucking needed that. But, like, I didn't, mm. didn't want to ask, you know? I didn't want to seem insecure, but also maybe I didn't want to actually find out the fucking truth. You know, when, you know, you said the word hired gun and like, that's how I felt at first. But as the tour continued and so like as we worked on songs together and arranged the new songs, like Jeremiah in particular made it clear that I wasn't a hired gun and I was in the band just as much as anyone else was. And so that was really incredible. And, um, you know, it was really sudden. It was really hard to watch him go, especially uh, in front of our eyes, because he was he toured into basically the last minute, you know, half of the last month of his life. He was on tour and, and I was just watching him in so much physical and mental pain, just pull through and play these amazing sets. It was wild. And I've never seen anything like that. And I don't think I ever will. And the sort of like the humanity and the courage and the uh, the power that he had and that he could tap into was just like absolutely devastating. So you knew he was going through it? Uh, yeah. You know, we knew he was not well, but he got his diagnosis very shortly before the Lonesome Crowd of West tour, which started end of November. Fuck. Um, wait, no, 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 no. Sorry, maybe the beginning. I don't fucking remember. Um, well, the rehearsals. Yeah, no, like the mid-November. So he was sick, but he wanted to do it. And he was going to do it until he couldn't do it anymore. And then uh, something I think it's really important to know is that Damon, who was his drum tech, he asked Damon to take over for him when he had to go and start chemo. And there hasn't been a public statement yet, but I think it is important to know that like that was Jeremiah's wish for Damon to play. And Jeremiah would never wanted the band to stop um, on account of him. And so he asked Damon to do it. He asked us to continue with Damon and we are. And it's it feels strange, but it also feels like we are at points, but also feels beautiful that we're able to sort of like honor this wonderful person by carrying on with this beautiful thing that he created. Yeah, man. Well, first of all, Simon, thank you for sharing that. Um, very tragic, but really beautiful the way you put it. Thank you. No, man. Thank you. And again, I'm I'm sorry for your loss. You know, I mean, it was just a massive, massive hit. I mean, Modest Mouse is when I think of next level, I think of Modest Mouse is like to me MGMT to uh, just next next level. Um, speaking of percussion, uh, you had like three or four percussionists on stage. I felt. Am I wrong in that? So we have uh, Benny, who is a percussionist through and through. That is his primary instrument, and he creates his own percussion. He he played with Red Red Meat and Caliphone, and uh, I think we came involved with Isaac and the kind of for the Ugly Casanova record, and I think started coming on tour maybe about ten years ago or something. But we had uh, this. There's the so Lonesome Crowd of West was just four of us, just a four piece, you know, two guitars, bass, drums. Yeah. 
but the usual lineup is six people where there's kind of a auxiliary guy keith and uh tom did that for a while but keith plays now and he uh you know plays keyboards upright bass uh occasional third guitar and then we have benny does percussion so that's a really cool thing yeah yeah but you know i will say like it's so new the jeremiah thing that like i still don't really know how to talk about it so i apologize if i seem rambly or no 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 stop um, but like when you said that there's bands that are like hardcore bands and then there's other bands like i felt that way too but then when i got to know the modest mouse guys literally the first song we played as a band together was police truck by the dead kennedys you know nice like oh this is a hardcore band you know and there's fucking songs that are hardcore songs too and i felt the same the same freedom that i did growing up playing hardcore because like MGMT works in a different, really different way. MGMT's recording project, first and foremost, that had to teach themselves how to play these songs live. Modest Mouse is a band that started in a fucking basement rehearsing and then finally like saved up enough money to go in the studio for a day you know what i mean like which is the way that every other band i was in especially the hardcore bands would do like just get tight figure out the songs of the band and then make the most of it and so like there was something it was the opposite where i had grown up like you know where i was the same age as modest mouse and mgmt were this band that like started when i was a kid and I had looked up to and then I had to kind of go in there and learn how to play in this sort of unfamiliar way. It would have been a lot harder to me, for me, but like learning how to play with MGMT was pretty easy because I had seen the band through every incarnation. But but Modest Mouse was almost more familiar as far as the way that worked and the way the band works out songs and arranges things and plays live. And it's a lot looser. And I was also given a lot more like carte blanche to be creative. Like, I don't think that there's there's not like one modest mouse set that sounds exactly like another one like the song yeah. always changing the set list is always different and it's basically about getting a bunch of people together who trust each other creatively and letting them maneuver together or independently around each other you know yeah man that's beautiful speaking of jeremiah let's let's um leave off on a positive thing what is your biggest takeaway that you will carry with you forever that you got from him um that personal relationships are equally as important as creative relationships and are one of the same and you can't be creative with people that you don't trust and he made sure that he opened himself up and made himself available and through doing that i did the same and i always knew that playing music with him was a safe space that's beautiful Okay, you seem to have cracked the fucking code, man. So you've got some songs in like Tony Hawk and shit. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff that's been, uh, you know, songs I've recorded with bands, people have put into commercials, video games, whatever. But I also do composition stuff um, where I'll either be hired for a specific job or kind of like create a library of things and they choose within those. But uh, yeah, I really love scoring. Like I said, my first sort of musical love was soundtracks. So I've always wanted to do that. Like if I'm not playing rock and roll on stage, I, I, I love sort of like having another musical outlet that I can tap into that I feel equally is sort of creatively fulfilled in, you know. Dude, uh, without trying to get too personal, how much has that been huge for you financially? Like, have you ever just been like really hurting on money and like, oh shit, this Tony Hawk or Madden check comes in like, oh my God, you know what I mean? It's usually like, I, I don't know whether it's luck, but like in between sort of breaks from touring, I uh, have usually been able to find a gig or something like that. Or I mean, it got me through the pandemic. I luckily got this sort of Amazon series that I scored and I could work from home and 
so it's nice it's like it's a very different world than the music world it's not the music world it's the film world it's a strange thing where like all of my accomplishments or whatever quote-unquote accomplishments whatever they may be in the sort of pop music world performing music don't really carry over to sort of the scoring world so i've been really lucky where i've been able i just can't disappear for that long i sometimes just have to like you know hit up the people i've worked for in the past and say like what are you working on and that tends to work occasionally or enough for me to not freak out you know persistence man uh that's how i got my denim jacket back there you go. <laughs> yeah fuck yeah all right, man. Dude, Simon, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and thanks for just talking about everything and anything. Let's plug some stuff, man. What do you got going on? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you, Dana, man. Thanks for being so chill and getting in contact with me again. But uh, so Spiral Heads, my band with Jim and Q, we are finally in the final phases of completing our first full length record, which will be coming out later this year on a label called Trash Casual. Uh, it's produced by Walter Schreifels of Quicksand Gorilla Biscuits, Youth Today, Rival Schools, blah, blah, blah. Hell yeah. Uh, mixed by Noel Hero. I hope I'm saying his last name the right way. From Hooray for Earth and uh, Mass Gothic. And, um, you know, this is something that we kind of worked on remotely during the pandemic and then got together and recorded it live in a studio. And I'm really proud of it. So look out for that. Cool, man. I'll put the links and all that stuff in the description of the episode. Is there anything else, dude? That's it, man. I wish I could stay longer. Let's do this again sometime. I'd love to. I'll hold you to that. Thanks so much for your time. You're a cool fucking cat, man. Thanks, Simon. No problem. All right. Peace.
Who are you? No. Uncle Dana. 